Genesis 2, starting in chapter, or verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that's, that was its name. The man gave name to all livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Thanks, Patrick. A long passage, uh, probably a familiar one. Um, but it's always good to read, especially familiar passages again and again and hear them. Uh, because... Uh, Inevitably, we think we're really familiar with them, but when we read them, we see things that maybe we've never seen before. And I know that's the case for me. I read it like 20 times this week, and each, each time it'd be like something else would pop out at me. And God's Word is living and active, right? So, so uh, it's, it's good to hear it. It's good to read it, um, even familiar ones especially. Um, and we, as Dan said, are in a new series called um, Thy Kingdom Come. 
And the, I, I love that, that picture. You have a crown uh, uh, that Jesus wore with the shadow of his crown uh, as a king. And so it's, it's, it's both picturing him as a suffering servant and as our Lord and Savior. And, and so as we look forward to Christmas um, and the advent of his first coming, we remember it. And uh, we, we remember that he was the king and he brought in, he ushered in his kingdom partially. And right now we're in an already but not yet kingdom, I think, as Dan also said. And, but, we, but we wait to look forward to a, a second coming, his second advent in his, in his kingdom that's consummated. And so that's what this series is about, um, his thy kingdom come, coming, coming from his, uh, his prayer, Jesus' prayer, when he was asked, how do we pray? And he said, he said thy fa- um, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And so that's our prayer as his followers is to look forward to his kingdom, right? So um, before we start, before we dive into this series, I have a question for you. If you guys are brave enough to raise your hand, especially you men, um, brave enough, raise, with a show of hands, how many people here like fairy tales? Oh, come on, men. I know you have some closet fairy tale likers. So Cinderella, Beauty and the Beast, uh, you know, Princess Bride, going to get some more men on that one, okay. Um, Lord of the Rings, yeah, The Hobbit. I, I call those kind of fairy tales adventure stories. They're hero stories, right? Um, I love those stories. I think every time I preach, I have to reference Lord of the Rings or something because um, I love it so much. There's so much, it's allegory, um, Narnia, stuff like that. So um, there are common threads with all those stories that we all like. Um, there's a princess, there's a dragon, there's a hero, there's a villain, there's a damsel in distress that can only be rescued by the knight in shiny armor. Um, there's magic oftentimes, and we love these stories, um, I think, because, because they're true. They're true. At least there's truth to all of them. They come out of real conflict, the real world we see around us. I heard Tim Keller say once that all stories have their origins in God and creation. Um, All fiction reflects the real story, the story we see in Scripture, the real story we see here. Um, We see uh, a rescue from a conflict in the story, right? Do we not? From the first page to the last page of Scripture, we can see the true story of stories. We see one story of a king and a kingdom. We can see a dragon and a curse and conflict and battles and an epic war and then a promised solution Uh, a prophecy that one day a hero would come to slay the dragon and reverse the curse. And he came, he fought, he sacrificed himself to save the princess bride. And one day soon, he sweeps her off her feet on his mighty white steed. He joins her in marriage and brings her into his father's kingdom. And they live happily ever after. That is the true story from which all stories come. We are the beast that's transformed by love. We are the paralyzed sleeping bride that's awakened by true love's kiss. We are rescued from Prince Humperdinck. We are the peasant in ashes that transforms into royalty. We are rescued from the white witch by the not safe but really good lion. We are pulled out of the orphanage, adopted by the rich father. The ring has been destroyed and the king has come. We are starting a new seven-week Advent series, and we're looking at all of Scripture for His kingdom, God's kingdom, 
it's a study of biblical theology. Biblical theology is just taking a thread or, or a theme all the way through Scripture from cover to cover because this is one story. It's 66 books written by 40 authors over 1,600 years with one ma- uh, God being the main author writing and inspiring through men one story. One story. It's a story of a kingdom. It's a story of a kingdom that has been broken. It's a story that he's writing, that he has written, and he's writing in us about how he's going to restore that kingdom one day. So this morning, uh, we're going to look. We're going to look at Genesis one and two. And we're introduced, and, and Patrick is thank, thanking me that I didn't have him read Genesis one as well. Um, but we are introduced to this theme, this reality that is God's kingdom. We're going to see the pattern, the pattern um, by which God set up His kingdom we see throughout, uh, throughout Scripture. So if you're a note taker, this is a pattern we're going to see each week, this week and the six following weeks of the kingdom. And it's, this is the pattern, God's people, God's place under God's rule and blessing. That's the pattern that God set up right from Genesis 1 and 2, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Before we jump into the series and this message, would you pray with me um, that God would bless it? Dear Lord, um, we do thank you and praise you for being our King and our Father. Um, we, we just continue to exalt you. We, 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 claim, we claim and we proclaim that you are our shepherd, just as we sing. Uh, that you, you, God, are our shepherd that leads us. We need you, Lord. We, you lead us through your word, and right now, by your spirit, would you lead us? Would you shepherd us? Um, would you guide us into all truth? Open our minds and hearts to what you have for us today, Lord. And we, just as we sang, we look forward to uh, dwelling in your house all the days of our lives. But in the meantime, Lord, we need your help. Um, Help us to, this morning, um, just discern your will and and see where our place is in this kingdom. And see what it is you've set up and why. And and for all your glory, God. Um, So, Lord, uh, edit what I say. Help me come under your word. Um, and Lord, uh, may you be exalted in praise. And all God's people said, amen. So the first two chapters of Genesis, the pattern of God's kingdom, his people, his place, and his rule and blessing. We're going to do a lightning quick review of Genesis 1. So if you have your Bibles, open them up, keep them open to Genesis 1 and 2. If you don't have your Bibles, I mean, you can, you can open up digitally, I'm sure, to a Bible. There's also some Bibles back there in the column. You feel free to take them. They're yours. Write your name in them. Take them home if you don't have a Bible. If you do have a Bible, don't take one. That wouldn't be good. Um, Leave it for someone else. Um, So here we go. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to go through, we're going to whip through Genesis 1, and then we're going to really spend the rest of our time in Genesis 2, where we really see the pattern of God's kingdom unfold. Uh, and then next week, Pat's going to open up the word and, and, and talk about the fall and the bad news. I get to talk all about good news before the fall. It's pretty awesome. I'm excited. Pat, good luck. Um, so here we go. Genesis 1. The first thing, uh, there's seven things to note. So if you're a note taker, seven things. Leave space for seven things. We'll do it really quickly. First thing, God, the main character of the Bible, is introduced in the first sentence. Elohim. Remember the name of God's series we used? Elohim is his name there, God. Um, it means cre- he's a creator God. He's the one doing all the action. And it's all about him. Second thing to note is that all three persons of the Trinity are there at the beginning. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And, and we know that a few, in a few ways. 
Um, first, the name Elohim is plural in Hebrew. Im is the plural ending, denoting uh, his tr- the Trinity. God is um, one God, but three persons. The, the other way we know that is we see uh, in, in verse 2 that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This, the third person of the Trinity was there. No one knows exactly what that means, but hovering means kind of protecting. He was protecting creation. And number three, we see Jesus was there um, in John 1, 1 through 2. Remember, the Bible's one story. So 1,500 years later, John, a disciple of Jesus, writes, echoing these words, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And that's referring to Jesus, of course. Um, In the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus made everything. He made it all. So the way I picture the Trinity in Scripture is that God the Father spoke. Jesus the Son did it. And the Spirit of God protects or keeps or hovers over, um, keeps it together. That's how I see it um, in creation. Fourth thing, I'm sorry, third thing to note, uh, it took six days for God to create everything. Verses three through uh, the rest of chapter one give us more detail on how and what and when he created. It took six days. Um, I'm going to leave it at that. I'm not gonna, we're not going to talk about how long the days were. You can, you can study that on your own. There's a lot of dispute there. But after each of the six days, it says this, and there was evening and there was morning the first day, the second day, the third day. To note that. Fourth thing to note, God is the one who defines good. In each day except the second day, and I don't know why, just discovered that yesterday. In the second day, he doesn't say things are good, but um, we know that they are because at the end, Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. God's the one who defines creation as good, and it's very good. Fifth thing, man is the pinnacle of God's creation because he, because he was created in God's image. Chapter 126 says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. There's that hour, that, that plurality in the Trinity speaking again. Likeness here does not mean looks. Um, it doesn't mean appearance. Um, it means in the same manner, with the same characteristics and similarities. For instance, you and I are made in a triune nature. I don't know if you ever thought about that, a mind, body, spirit. And, and that way we kind of reflect God's image. Uh, we are also made to create we are made for relationships. We were made with emotions. And in these ways, we're made in God's likeness. That's, that's some of what we think uh, it means to be made in God's image. But here, perhaps the main idea of being made in God's image here is, is one of function, not just essence. So in ancient times, kings, when they conquered a land or they wanted to claim a territory or region or realm for their own, they would place images of themselves in that land. So think of, you know, uh, the Ten Commandments back from the 50s, Charlton Heston, you'd see all these images of Pharaoh all over Egypt. He places image in the land saying, this is my land, this is, this is my land, this is, this is not yours, I'm claiming this for mine. And, and then uh, kings would also send ambassadors to represent them. And that's the, the idea here um, for God creating us people in his image, that we are his representatives claiming creation as his. We are here to represent, be ambassadors for him, Um, essentially being made in God's image means that the first people were to share in the rule and expansion of this kingdom. 
and rule it and steward it as God would. We do things as God would have us do it. That's part of bearing his image in the world. Sixth thing to note, God spoke everything in existence. He spoke it. God speaks words and things are made from nothing. Boom, they just appear. The heavens and the earth, the whole universe and everything in it is not made up of just atoms or particles or the smallest scientifically identified element known as a quark. No, it's made up of words. I stole, I stole this idea from this book. I love this book. It's called Notes from a Tilt-A-Whirl by Indy Wilson. Highly recommend it. Let me read an ex- excerpt from it of how he describes God speaking things into existence. I love it. I look around at the stuff of the world, he says, and I ask myself, what is it made of? Words. Magic words. Words spoken by the infinite. Words so potent, spoken by one so potent that they have weight and mass and flavor. They are real. They have taken on flesh and dwelt among us. They are, they are us. In the Christian story, the material world came into existence at the point of speech, and that speech was ex nihilo, from nothing. God did not look around for some cosmic goo to sculpt or another God to dice and recycle. He sang a song, composed a poem, began a novel so enormous that even the Russians are dwarfed by its heaped up pages. You are spoken. I am spoken. We stand on a spoken stage, the spinning kind, the round kind, the moist kind, the kind of stage with beetles and laughter and babies and dirt and snow and fresh cut cedar. You are made of cells. I am made of cells. My cells are built on molecules. My molecules make use of atoms. My atoms are mostly space, but the bits that aren't are called quarks. My quarks are standing because they're obedient. They've been told to by a voice they cannot disobey. Kick a stone. There are no tricks here. There are no props, no prefabbed white rabbits. The magic is real, and I stand blinking on the stage because of it. I'm real. I'm heavy. I'm matter. Cut me, and I'll bleed, but I'm not made out of anything. And if the magician, the poet, the word, if the singer were to stop his voice, I would simply cease to be. I love that. I think it's so true. I love that picture. And in Hebrews... In Hebrews, the beginning of Hebrews, it's talking about Christ, Jesus, in, in creation. And he said, it says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That literally means he still, to this day, right now, carries along all things by his word. And if he stopped speaking, you and I would be gone. It's God's providence. He's with us now, holding us together. Seventh, and last thing to note, God didn't create out of need. He created out of desire. God existed eternally before creation as a trinity, the three persons of the trinity existing in perfect loving relationships. So God didn't create man out of a need for relationship because he was lonely or bored. I've heard someone say, again, I have all these references. I listen to too much stuff and sorry for the person I'm, I'm copying, but um, a, a, a God who's not a trinity is a deficient God, is an insufficient God, because then he's creating out of a need for relationship. But we don't have a God like that. He had a perfect relationship before all time. He didn't create us out of a need. Jesus also, God didn't, God didn't create us out of a need for glory either. He existed perfectly in glory before creation. Jesus, in John 17, the night before his crucifixion, is praying to his Father, and he says in verse 5, 17, John 17, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you 
before the world existed. There was no shortage of glory before creation. Again, God created out of, not out of need, but out of desire. There you go. There's our lightning quick review of Genesis 1. That brings us to Genesis 2. Um, there's so much more to say. Your homework is to read it 20 times this week, and I bet you you'll see something new every time. Um, so read it, study it, know it. It shows you who God is. And that was a quick, right? Um, and I'm almost always amazed at it. Um, and I don't know about you, but up until like about last winter, I, was, I would read this, and I grew up in the church, so I read it a lot. And, and I would ask these questions of the text. I would, I would ask how questions, and when questions, and where questions, and what questions of the text. More scientific type questions, like how did God make everything? Like how long did it take him to do it? How long was a, six, was, was a day? Um, when did this occur? Um, when did the angels get made? Um, when did, you know, all these kind of, probing scientific questions of the text. And those aren't bad questions, but here's the deal. Are they primary questions that we should be asking of the text? Are they the main questions that Moses, when he wrote this, wanted us to ask of the text? And I would say, no, they're not the primary questions. I'm suggesting now that if those questions are primary, then we don't need chapter two of Genesis. It's redundant. We could, just, we could just read, you know, last verse of one, and God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, and so on, to chapter three. But let me tell you, without a chapter two of Genesis, the good news of the gospel is just, eh. Without a chapter two, the kingdom of God is... Bleh. Eh. The hope we have as believers is kind of eh, without chapter 2 of Genesis. Christians who don't read chapter 2 or, or just kind of breeze over it as just more how kind of things, I, 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 call, I call us functional deists. I think I used to be a functional deist where God is just, he spun the earth in existence and, and it's on its axis and he walks away and just lets it take care of itself. Um. He's distant. And the highest hope of, of Christians who believe that, the highest hope of heaven, the completed kingdom, is a harp and a cloud and a far side looking innocuous old man, God with a white beard who you never will meet. And maybe you can see from a distance, but he's not real. He's not personal. That's what we get without Genesis 2. But if the primary questions we ask as we read this are not how, but who questions, and not when and where, but why questions, then we desperately need chapter two. Like, who are you, God? That's the right question. And why are you doing this? That's the question. Those are the questions you ask of any text in the Bible. Um, Not that the other ones are bad, but they're not primary. The primary is like, God, what are you telling me about yourself? Who are you? And so when you start asking those questions of this text, it blows up. My, my mind started blowing up. Um, it, it was, wow, God, you're here. And, and so that's what I'm encouraging us to ask these questions. And so um, listen to this, uh, I love another book, talk about fairy tales, Narnia. I read, I read the Chronicles of Narnia last, last year, last winter. Um, and it was helpful to me as I was reading scripture um, to open my mind to like, who are you, God? And, and it just, I think the best depiction in, in all, of, all of literature, fiction, whatever, of God 
C.S. Lewis captured in Aslan. I, think, I can't think of a better, better de- depiction. And let, re- listen to this uh, description. Some of you have read it from Magician's Nephew. This is Aslan, the lion, creating Narnia. And he's using his voice, and he's singing. Maybe some of you are familiar with this, but let me read this. I love this. The eastern sky changed from white to pink and from pink to gold. The voice rose and rose till all the air was shaking with it. And just as it swelled to the mightiest and most glorious sound it had yet produced, the sun arose. You could imagine that it laughed for joy as it came up. And as its beams shot across the land, the travelers could see for the first time what sort of place they were in. It was a valley through which a broad, swift river wound its way, flowing eastward toward the sun. Southward, there were mountains. Northward, there were lower hills. But it was a valley of mere earth, rock, and water. There was not a tree, not a bush, not a blade of grass to be seen. The earth was of many colors. They were fresh, hot, and vivid. They made you feel excited until you saw the singer himself. And then you forgot everything else. I love that. I love that. So in chapter two, let's look at this and let's look for the singer. Not just, not just look for what he did, but look for him. And remember that here's the pattern. We're going to see the pattern come out. God's people, God's place under God's rule and blessing. And we're going to skip verses one through three. We're going to close with those because chronologically they happened after the next passages. So another thing to note, Genesis is not written in chronological order in the first two. So we have the heading, verses one and two, and then we have God creating uh, the, the earth and then uh, heavens and earth. And then in chapter two, we zoom in on him specifically creating uh, man. So this is not a second account of God creating man like he created him twice. This is just a zoom in of what he did in the first part. So that's what we're going to do. So, so God's people, that's what we're looking at right now, God's people. Let's ask this question of the text. What kind of people does God want in his kingdom? If you're taking notes, that's the question. What kind of people does God want in his kingdom? First, God wants people to rule on his behalf. We already talked about this, but being, by being made in God's image means representing him. One of the ways people represent him is by ruling over his creation. Verse 26 of, of chapter 1, and let them have dominion. God wants people who can help him rule over his creation. Ambassadors, stewards, so people in God's kingdom have a royal status, actually. They're co-leaders. That's the kind of people God wants. Number two, God wants a people who minister to his creation, who can mediate and care for it. Chapter 2, verse 15 says this, the Lord God took the man and, and put him, bless you, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. These words to work and keep also are uh, rendered to serve or minister and guard. And, and the same words that priests are commanded to do for the tabernacle and the temple in Numbers. These are priestly words. These are, these are caring words. These are protecting words. God wants a people to minister over his creation. A priest. He wants us to be priests in his kingdom. Because also worship comes out of this place. This, these people, from these people. Number three, God wants a people to expand his kingdom. To build, multiply, uh, 
chapter 128 says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is sometimes called the cultural mandate. Maybe you've heard that term. To fill the earth, to expand it, to take all the resources in creation and make more of it, to make more people. So God wants a people who are builders of his kingdom. So to sum up, the people in God's kingdom are to help him rule, minister, and build his kingdom. They're rulers, they're priests, and they're builders. Basically, God calls people to multiply his people, his place, and his rule and blessing. That's the pattern. And he wants people to join him in his kingdom work. That's an awesome, awesome high calling, is it not? Um, and this is why 1 Peter 1.9 is saying when it says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession. If you know Christ, you are a royal priesthood. You have royalty. You help him rule. He wants you to help him, represent him in his kingdom. You also are a priesthood. He wants you to serve and minister to those in the kingdom. And we're also to call to multiply and expand it. It's pretty amazing. You know, God didn't have to do this. Remember, he didn't create out of need. He didn't create out of need, but desire. God doesn't need people to expand his kingdom. He doesn't need a kingdom at all, right? But he desires that people would join him in his work of making a kingdom. God's God's kingdom is different than any other. He set it up to depend upon people for its existence. He set it up that way for it to thrive and grow. And not because he couldn't do it all by himself, but because he wanted to share it with people. Why? Why? Because people are dearly, dearly loved by him. He made people for himself to love. And that's the kind of people God wants to fill his kingdom. And now the second part of the pattern, let's look at the place of God's kingdom in Genesis 1 and 2. So we're going to ask this question of the text. What kind of place does God want for his kingdom? What kind of place So first, he wants a place that is very good. Verse 131, as we've already read, he wants a perfect place, a whole place lacking nothing. Second, God wants an expanding and growing and multiplying place. place. See, even though God was finished with his direct work in making his very good creation, creation wasn't done. His work in making it was done, but he extends his work through his people and the creation continues to build, continues to grow, continues to multiply through people. That's what his desire is we see in this this chapter. He wants a place that grows and multiplies. God's place wasn't just to be in Mesopotamia. It was to be over all the earth. Third, God wants a place that's rich with resources and abundance. Verses 2, chapter 2, 10 through 14, we see this. We have four rivers flowing out of the center of it. We have onyx, bdellium, gold, resources in the earth that need to be mined and developed. The idea here is that the potential for growth and development is there. The use of resources and technology, the potential for human invention and creativity, were all there at the beginning. This is a place without limits of imagination and potential human growth. So there's no reason in the text to indicate that if there was no fall, we'd still be in a garden right now, like gardeners. There's no indication that that's that's the limit 
of God's uh, desires for us. Um, but there's, there's things to be mined. There's things to do with things he's made. And, and so there's no reason to expect that there wouldn't have been cities and, and towns and technology. Um, but it all would, would have been not broken, right? It would all have been perfect reuse for his glory. Okay, pause for a second. Time out. What if we stopped right here? We talked about God's people, right? We talked about God's place, and it all sounds really good. In fact, very good. God called it very good. We could stop. We're done. We're done talking about it. Uh, it sounds pretty good, right? In, in the past, that's exactly what I've done. I've stopped here. I thought, wow, that's cool. Thanks, God. That's cool. Um, and in the past, uh, I just stopped. And, and I thought, well, that was how Adam and Eve were. They were in the garden. They were naked, perfect, no sin. Everything was great. There was potential for everything. That's awesome. Someday I'm going to get that in heaven. Cool. Thank you. Um, you know, and, and everything was great. The sky was the limit. They, and then they screwed up. And then, and then Jesus had to come so that he could, he could get us back to being a perfect people in a perfect place again, Right? And he's ruling us from heaven, and the blessing we share is just creation itself and each other, right? And that's what Jesus died for, right? To bring us back to a place like that, with people like that, right? Well, that's where I've stopped in the past. But see, God did not stop there. A paradise where you and I can exist in perfection, full of potential, a place filled with perfect people, no sin, no crying, no death, no pain, no aches, no cancer, no car crashes, no hunger, and no elections. That's not good enough for God. That's not good enough good news for God. He wants to do more than that. We see. So let's not stop there. And we talked about these first two aspects of the, of the pattern of the kingdom, right? God's people and God's place. But what about his rule and blessing? Let's talk about that. What do I mean he's not stopped there? And this is the most important point of the message. This is the most important point of your lives, of our existence. This is what makes the gospel good news. This is what Jesus died for. This is what Jesus rose for. This is what God has done everything in this book for is to bring us not just to a place, but surely a place, and not just with his people, but to himself, to the king, to him. God's rule and blessing and people and his place and his presence are inextricably uh, connected. You have to be connected. They're all aligned. And so to continue what kind of place, here it is. Fourth, God wants his place his place to be our place, and our place to be his place. And this is huge. God wants to be with his people in the same place at the same time, physically and spiritually. Chapter 2 is where we see God get personal. He doesn't just stay outside from a distance. I used to imagine that God just stays outside here, and as he's creating the world, you know, he's like flinging like matter into this box or into this bowl, and then he throws in some trees and some badgers and some water, and okay, here's some people from a distance, and I imagine like the old 1970s Clash of Titans, I don't know if some of you saw that, but like, you know, there's a god like Zeus, and he's like, has like a chessboard, and he's manipulating stuff down there, and he's distant. I used to think God was like that in creation, but that's not the picture we see. He was right there, 
springing up trees, hedgehogs, rock formations, and most importantly, people. He was there. Genesis 2, 7. Look at that. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The word formed there is the same word for fashion or sculpt with his hands. God literally, I believe, physically sculpted Adam out of the ground and then breathed life into his nostrils. There's physical words there. God was there. Timothy Keller, again, in another message, he says, God got his hands dirty. He was there in creation, forming man right there and breathing into him life. In, in verse 6, I, I, I saw this. I thought it was kind of funny. Um, it says, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Have you guys ever tried to sculpt something out of dry Play-Doh? You know, it just cracks and there's nothing. You, gotta, you add water, it's no, there's no hope. Well, God, you know, has, he's working with moist ground because he's going to sculpt Adam. And, and I just have this picture. It's real. It happened right there. And then God said, for the first time, something wasn't good for Adam to be alone. And he said, I will make a helper for him. So in this kind of weird scene, God makes all these animals pass by Adam and he names them all and basically doesn't find any of them he wants to marry. You know, like a horse goes by, um, a skunk, a tarantula. No, no, no. Um, no, but Gen- Genesis 2, 21 through 22, it's beautiful. Let me read it. Read it with me. So the Lord God, and, and there, I, I don't have time for, man, it's, it's always, a, a message is always about like what not to say, but the word Lord God there is inserted there. It's the word Yahweh. It's his personal name. It's not just Elohim. It's Yahweh. So verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, so this is like surgery. He's there. Like he's right there and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. Did you hear that word? Brought. It wasn't sent, it was brought. God didn't say, All right, Eve, go there. Like, I'm going to send you to Adam. He's your man. No, he brought her, brought her to the man as a father would his bride down the aisle giving his, his daughter to this man. This is the first marriage. God the Father was there. He brought Eve, not sent, brought. That word is huge. God is there. Later in chapter 3, verse 8, Adam and Eve could hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. He was physically there. Physical feet were interacting with physical ground, causing physical sound waves to be received in physical ears. God was present. God's place was their place, and their place was God's place. They were God's people, and he was their God. It was a personal relationship from the beginning. God was not just a distant king somewhere. They knew him, and they were known by him intimately, and this leads us to his rule, that, 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 that part of the, the pattern, his people, his place, his rule. This is the kind of kingdom that God wants, the kind of rule he wants, not a rule from some high tower somewhere, but a rule in their midst with them, co-ruling his creation. Wow, why would he do that? Adam and Eve could have been in a kingdom in a place without knowing the king, right? This happens all the time. Um, You could be a citizen of the kingdom of of Great Britain. You could be a citizen in the kingdom of, of England, and you would have all the rights and privileges of a citizen in that kingdom. 
and, and you could go anywhere in that realm, in that land, but you don't have to know Queen Elizabeth to be a citizen. Uh, how many British citizens, I wonder, know the Queen personally? How many have ever met her? How many know her intimately? How many can call themselves her children, her friends? That's the kind of kingdom that God doesn't want. He doesn't want an impersonal one. He wants one where he knows you and you know him. It's not good enough for God, that kind of kingdom. He's not just a king to Adam and Eve. He's a father. He's spiritually, physically with them. That's how our Lord God wants to rule his kingdom in our presence. And we see this all through scripture. God desiring to make his dwelling among us. We see it here. We see it in the tabernacle and the temple where his presence comes. I told the first service, your homework is to read the Bible, all of it. And you'll see this, the kingdom. God wants his presence to be with us. Um, his, his, his presence comes to the temple one day, one, one man, one year, uh, one day a year. It's not good enough. So he, he, he sends his son, Jesus. We're about to celebrate the sending of his son. God made flesh, Emmanuel. God dwells with us. But that was, wasn't the end. It was only brought in a partial kingdom. It wasn't enough yet. And so when Jesus left, he sent us his spirit. And so now we have his presence with him all the time by his spirit. But that's not enough either. One day... We have his presence when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. We'll see the Lord face to face. And we not only, not only have his spiritual presence, but a physical presence. Again, Jesus still has a physical body. Still. And he will, we will see him face to face. We will be with him one day. He wants to be with us in our presence. God wants his place to be our place, to rule in our midst. Why? Why did God do all this? It wasn't out of need. It was out of desire. What is God after? Blessing. And here's the last part of our, of our, of our kingdom pattern. Uh, God's people, God's place, God's rule, and his blessing. What does he want? What, what's he after? He wants to bless us. He wants to share his kingdom with us because he loves us and he wants to be with us. And he wants us to be with him. And after God finishes his work in creation, we're going to read, now we're going to read uh, chapter two, one through three, because we missed it. We skipped it. This is, the, this is the end. This is the purpose of it all. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he restored, or sorry, he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So after God finished his work, he finished, he finished his last with human beings. He's in their midst, and what does he do? He rests with them. I used to think, again, distant God, I used to think, okay, I'm done here, Adam and Eve good luck. See ya. I'm going to go off on my heavenly pillow and rest because I'm tired. Uh, I used to have this image of God like that. No, I believe he rested with them. He, he wanted to show them what the purpose uh, of, of it all was, is to be with him. Uh, why? Why did he, need, did he need to do that? No, because he created energy. Um, he doesn't expend it. So he doesn't need to rest uh, because he had a need. He desired to do it. He wanted to. And I also believe, it says in Scripture, he established a pattern that we should follow, that we work six days and we rest the seventh. 
And then in the very act of resting himself, I like to think on the seventh day, God created rest. By doing it, by showing us what it looked like. If there was no seventh day, we'd just work, right? Uh, and there would, what would be the point? Um, but, the, but God's showing us in the act of doing it, he's showing us the point of the work, work to rest with him, work to rest with him. This is not retirement. This is working to be in a relationship with him. That's what all our endeavors should do, to bring him glory, to be with him. The first thing that God wanted us to see is the purpose, that we would enjoy him in his creation. I believe he stayed and hung out with Adam and Eve in creation on the seventh day. Is that the day, I wonder, that God created giddiness? The feelings of thrill, excitement? Is this the day that when Adam and Eve realize what happens when you, when you mix gravity and adrenaline and you jump off of a waterfall and you, lay, and you scream all the way down? Is that the day when they realized what God had done for them? Fun was invented. Excitement was invented. Did you know God did that? You, man did not make up fun. Um, when Adam and Eve first saw each other, God created butterflies. You know, like this, this giddy feeling, this, like, this tingly feeling we have inside when we see each other. Uh, is this when they forgot everything else and they basked in God's presence? And I, I like to imagine, did, did God laugh at them when he pushed them off the waterfall again as he heard them scream all the way down? I imagine a God like that, that, that he's with us and he's, he wants to enjoy us just as we want to enjoy him. And notice I'm almost done, I promise. Notice that this is the only day, seventh day, that there's no ending to it. There's no like, and, and there was evening, and there was morning, and the seventh day. That wasn't in that day. Signifying that this is still going on. This is still going. It points to the perfected kingdom. One day we will share in all its fullness. The writer of Hebrews says in 4, so then there remains a Sabbath rest. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest is also rested from his work as God did from his. The promise of entering his rest. This is the purpose to be with him. Is this what Jesus meant when he said, come to me, all you who are weary and are burdened, and I will give you rest? I think so. And then he worked, and he worked, and he worked himself to death on the cross to pay for the sins of his people who reject their relationship with this perfect creator, Father King, and settled for much less to bring them not just out of hell, not out of a place, not into a place only, but into a relationship with himself. Not just dwelling in his house all the days of our lives, but dwelling in his presence with the Father in his arms all the days of your life. We don't just get a mansion. We get him forever. Have you put your faith in Jesus this morning? And yet this morning, maybe you feel like God is distant. Like he has forgotten you. Like he's a king and you're in the kingdom, but you don't know him personally. Maybe it's because you forgot that he's a real person that wants to be with you. He wants you to enjoy him, and he wants to enjoy you in perfect relationship. Go back to him. Talk to him. Listen to him in his word. He wrote this and did all this for you. Do you not know him this morning? Has he always been distant, and you've never known him as a God who is near, but rather some cosmic force out there that just spun things in existence? If that's you, 
I imagine you're weary. I imagine that you are burdened. Um, I imagine that life doesn't seem like it has a point. The point, the point is being with the one who made you. He knit you together. He fashioned you just like he fashioned Adam. The Bible says he knit you together. He formed you intricately in your mother's womb. And, and he made you for himself, for relationship. Um, cast your burden on Jesus who paid the way for you to be in a relationship with him. There's no need to wait any longer. This God, this father who wants to know you is drawing, it wants to draw you to himself. Why not today? Why not, why not believe in Jesus and be ushered into this kingdom that's already here, but not yet here? He wants to delight in you forever. Why not shed all the junk right now? be part of his people in his place under his rule and blessing. Why not? It's a beautiful thing um, to know him. Let me pray. Dear Father, we, we praise you as our Father, not just our King. Certainly you are our King, Lord, and you are deserving of all, wor- uh, you are deserving of all worship and glory and honor and power. And so we, we praise you and exalt you. We want to fear you, God, because you're, you're not just good, but you, and you're not, just, you're not safe either, but you are very good. God, you're not just a king. You are a father, and you, you want to adopt us. And some of us, many of us, you have adopted. We are sons and daughters, and you desire relationship with us. And maybe some of us are far off right now. And Lord, I pray for those who feel far off. Lord, I pray that you would um, remind us that you just are calling us. You're a father calling us. Please come home. Please come home. I want to run to you and throw a robe around around you and and a ring on your finger and call you my son, my daughter. For those of us who don't know you at all, who've never experienced that that relationship, I pray um, that for those who are weary and burdened, I pray that they would see you, Jesus, as the only way to this, this relationship with a father who loves, who never leaves or forsakes who's done all that he's done through Christ to bring us to himself. Lord, help us believe that. Draw people to yourself today. Lord, convict people of their need for you. Lord, help us be a church that goes out and proclaims this amazing good news. Even in the season when we're waiting and we're thinking of what you've done for us by coming in the flesh, Lord, help us proclaim that as a body and believe it and trust in it and long for you again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.